Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 133. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I'm really excited to introduce a very special guest, Jim Simpson. Jim, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I'm actually not buckled in, but I'm sitting in my comfortably in my Porsche 914 6 chair, which is actually the only thing I have still remaining from that particular <laughs> car. <laughs> very cool, very cool. I love that. I had a 914 myself, but it wasn't as, as cool as a 6. It was 73 2.0, but still a fun little car. Neat cars. Yeah. Jim Simpson is the owner of Contemporary Classics of Washington in Clinton, Washington. At his company, he oversees the restoration of interesting older European cars and special design projects. Jim's history with the cars goes back to 1975 when he started his business, and along the way, he's been involved with numerous custom automotive adventures. He designed and built the Blu-ray 3 for the Nardi Company in Italy, and that vehicle was displayed at the Concorso Italiano in 1992. He's worked with Kevin Hines and Chuck Beck, where he built the Miami Roadster and he continues to design and build unique automobiles and projects while restoring European cars. So, Jim, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a moment and share some more about your history, your business, your interests, and, of course, your passion for automobiles? I'd be delighted. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one other little piece to what you just said. Yeah. I actually have a second company, which is under the umbrella of Contemporary Classics, which is Simpson Design. And that's actually the side of the company that really does the, uh, the custom cars. And gosh, since uh, I've been living in Washington State, we're that, I moved up here in 97. Gosh, we're almost up to 100 cars now. Oh, my gosh. That we've, that we've custom built for people, which is very cool. You know, I'm, I'm truly delighted and grateful that, that people like what I do and, and want to have one of my creations. That's, that's a nice thing. Fantastic. Well, take us through your life a little bit here. How did you get to being a car designer, a car restorer? I mean, all the different things you've been involved with. Gosh, you know, it's really funny. I mean, I, it really started when I was a little kid, like four or five years old. I'd, anything that had wheels on it was A-OK in my book. It uh, didn't matter whether it was a car or a truck or a bus. I mean, if it had wheels in it and it went down the road, I wanted to know about it. 
and, uh, and and made it a point to do so. It's a shame we didn't have the internet way back then. Oh but gosh! Yeah. Nonetheless, I, I read prolifically, and you know, I saw the library on a regular basis, and anything they had that had to do with cars, I just devoured. I that was it, you know, it was my passion long before it was my vocation. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up and, and going through school, uh, I was very involved in music too, and, and also astronomy. But but cars was the one thing that really really got under my skin. By the time I was in high school. I actually got to the point where I wasn't too bad at drawing cars and would while away hours sitting in classes wasting my time drawing cars rather than thinking <laughs> in their classes. Not much of a surprise there. I think a lot of us probably did that. Yep. After I got out of high school, actually I should start actually when I was in high school, I served my formal European apprenticeship. I also went through some General Motors sponsored uh, auto mechanics training and uh, served a two and a half year formal European apprenticeship and uh, actually managed to, when I left there, I was a journeyman mechanic, and then uh, left there to go on and do my Ferrari apprenticeship, which was uh, another two years under Sid Simpson, who's actually no relation. But Sid had uh, one of the actually most famous Ferrari shops in the nation, Simpson Automobili, which was in Houston, Texas, and had some amazing clients like John Meekham Jr., and who at the time had the uh, distinction of having owned more one-of-a-kind Ferraris than any other person in the world. Wow. Uh, remarkable guy, and, and you know, not only did I get to enjoy working on a lot of his cars, he was a very generous and kind man and, and you know, was, was very keen to, to have people enjoy his cars and, and shared his life, which was, you know, that of a multimillionaire. So mm-hmm. I mean, it was a pretty cool thing. I can recall, you know, years ago going over to the Meekum Mansion to pick up cars, and his living room was literally probably three times the size of the Ferrari shop. <laughs> he always had one of his Indy cars, which would get changed out every month or two, uh, sitting in his living room. Very cool. <laughs> and I used to think that was just about the coolest thing, you know, that a guy would actually be that enthusiastic. And I remember going over and actually helping, and, and literally we'd, we would rotate the cars up onto a set of dollies on its side on the wheels so that we could roll them through the front door of the Meekum Mansion and into the living room. It was just a remarkable thing <laughs> and a good time. Yeah. And, you know, he was always very generous and, and, you know, took care of everybody that helped out moving the cars and everything. It was it was a nice thing. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I got a little, little sidetracked No, there. very interesting. <laughs> but kind of a, a fun piece. Some of your, your listeners will remember that uh, John Meekum, was the guy that actually kind of helped put General Motors on the map at uh, Speed Week with the Corvette Grand Sports. Oh, yes. Uh, with Augie Paps and A.J. Foyt and some young upstart by the name of Roger Penske. <laughs> Just a remarkable, remarkable guy. Anyway, he had Meekum Racing for years, and they had all kinds of interesting cars that you know went through his hands. And Until one day, Daddy said, you need to make a decision, son. It's either the, the toys or company oil business yep. or the, the family oil business you know what's it going to be john said you know dad i was just thinking that you know those cars really aren't all that important to me at this point i i've been thinking more about the oil <laughs> <laughs> yeah so needless to say he made the right decision and so he kind of got it all because eventually he had all the cars and everything and the oil so yep. yeah it all, it all worked out good for him i think so Anyway, you know, the whole notion of working on cars, uh, I was very mechanical as a kid and actually had my first job when I was 13 working on weekends at a gas station as a mechanic. <laughs> oh, wow. Which, you know, was fairly remarkable for me and, and a good time. So I yeah. started accumulating tools, and it dawned on me, you know, by the time I was in high school that, you know, if I was ever going to have neat cars, I had to be able to afford them somehow. And 
one of the easy ways that I might be able to do that was actually, you know, going to be working on them because I certainly did not come from a family of means. Mm-hmm. Well, you got into not only uh, working on cars and car restoration, but also you're involved in designing cars. And you talked about the beginning uh, coming up here on a hundred cars that you built for people. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I actually got started back when I was in Texas building cars with the. Uh, Chuck Beck and Kevin Hines. You know, I had been designing cars, like I said, since I was in, in high school and during my apprenticeship and whatnot. That was actually even part of my projects that I would get assigned during my apprenticeship was to design this or that based on, you know, various ideas and criteria that uh, my mentors would give me. So that was, uh, they supported that notion, recognizing that, you know, clearly it was something I was interested in. One of the things that's, that's kind of fun is that I really was, was, kind of bored with American cars by the time I got into high school, and I was looking for something else, and I really kind of started to discover European stuff. I remember going when I finally did have a car and and the ability to go out and drive and and whatnot, poking around various places and and seeing cars and and that sort of thing, including one of the places in Houston that I I blundered into was A.J. Foyt's shop over on 12th Street and uh, got to meet his, you know, chief mechanic, Howard. And, and when A.J. wasn't around, they would let me poke around in the shop. And when <laughs> A.J. was there, it was quite a different story. Yep. That was when I started to learn about European cars. And I was actually in General Motors training when I happened to pass a shop that had all kinds of sports cars out front. And I was kind of fascinated with that. I remember in, in particular there was a yellow Jag convertible sitting out there. And I thought, well, that's just pretty darn neat. That's actually one of the prettiest things I've ever seen. What the heck is that? <laughs> so, you know, I, I drove into the place and got to meet the guys and got to talking, and one thing led to another, and they agreed to take me on as an apprentice, which was very cool. That was Herman Krause and Hasso Schroeder. And they actually had interesting histories in their own right. Herman had worked for Mercedes-Benz in Germany for years, and uh, Hasso had been involved with numerous things in Sweden, including Saab and Volvo. You know, these were these were guys that had vast knowledge and had decided to come to the U.S. and open their own place. And one thing led to another, and the next thing I knew, I was working for these two guys. Very cool. Yeah. Now they were, they taught me a lot. And they taught me well. I'm, I'm eminently grateful every day when I go to work to to all I learn from them. We're going to learn more about all the things you've been involved with as we proceed here. But I always like to start your journey with a success quote. And this is a saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success, and it's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Jim, take the wheel. Okay, it's interesting that you should ask about that. Like I said, I was actually very interested in music and very involved in music and actually had uh, quite a bit of classical training. In fact, I was first chair violin for eight years. Uh, Then Cars eventually overtook, you know, my life. and. Mm -hmm. Either very wrecked cool. my life or, or made my life, depending on how you look <laughs> at it. But one of the guys that uh, I found very inspirational was a conductor who's quite famous, Arthur Fiedler. Mm-hmm. And Arthur Fiedler used to drive his Volkswagen convertible. And on the steering wheel, he had a little tape label maker label with his favorite saying, which was, he who rests rots. Mm. <laughs> yes. And I took that to heart. I thought, wow, that's really cool. That's kind of been been my motto all my life. You know what's neat about that quote is it relates very well to cars because if you have a collector car and you don't drive it and take it out and care for it, it'll rot. It atrophies. It atrophies, just like the human spirit does if you don't 
push yourself and, and be creative and, and always be looking for something new. How have you incorporated that success quote into your business and into your life and your passion for cars? Well, it's interesting. One of the, one of the things that I have told my clients for years, and I believe this, I believe this wholeheartedly, and unfortunately I don't follow my own advice nearly well enough, but having a wonderful car and then having it sit in the garage because you don't want to use it up mm-hmm. is absolute nonsense <laughs> because it's going to go to heck in a handbasket sitting there. So it's not something you want to have happen. So you might as well enjoy it because it's going to go bad anyway. You know, every time I've sold a collector car that I've had and it's driven down the street with the new owner, I've looked at my wife, Jill, and said, I wish I'd enjoyed that car more. I just saved it for that guy. <laughs> yeah, and isn't that a sad thing? Boy, have I said that a number of times. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, you know, it's really terrible. And it's so, you know, I think you're right to get out and enjoy these vehicles. I mean, we are their caretakers in some sense for absolutely the next person that gets to enjoy them. doesn't mean you can't go out and enjoy them and drive them. Would you share with me a moment in your life that instigated your passion for cars? That pivotal moment when you really knew you were a car guy. This was after school one day when I was in high school, and I was out poking around and and driving down some back streets in Houston, and I happened on, I remember this very, very well because this was was a pivotal moment, Um, I I was poking around and driving past all these warehouses and stuff. Sitting in this one warehouse that the garage door was open on, there was a guy working on a Ferrari Daytona. Mm-hmm. Turned out it was his Daytona, and in the same garage he also had a Maserati Ghibli Spider. Here I am, you know, teenage kid, you know, long hair and driving my 1962 Rambler American. <laughs> and I pull up and stop, and and I said, I'm sorry to bother you, but I just got to know what that is. What the heck kind of car is that? That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And he said, Well, it's a Ferrari. And it was like, a Ferrari? Wow, what's that? <laughs> Wow. And so, you know, the next thing I know, I'm, I'm, you know, looking over at this this incredible light metallic green Maserati Ghibli Spider, and it's like, what the heck is that? Yeah, even even well, more rare. Maserati. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like one thing led to another, and you know, and we struck up a friendship, and and it wasn't long after that that I found the Ferrari shop, and again, you know, the what happened to me at that point was just kind of mind-boggling. It was like my eyes had been opened to a whole new world that I didn't know existed. And in fact, you know, even at 59 years of age, one of the things I love more than anything else is being introduced to a car I never knew happened. Yeah. That is true excitement for me. (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. So, Jim, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and, and really crawl under the hood a bit and ask you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure that you've faced in your career. But more importantly, share with us how you overcame that and what you learned from it. Gosh, I'm going to give you two. One, uh, one kind of sticks in my mind from my apprenticeship days. Mm-hmm. Remember that yellow jag I mentioned earlier? Yeah. Well, at one point during my apprenticeship, I was given the task of replacing the exhaust on that car. Mm-hmm. And this is on a creeper on the floor with a car on jack stands, not up on a lift. This is the old days and the old ways. Mm-hmm. I finally got the exhaust system on the car, and Herman came over, got it down on a creeper, rolled into the car, and he found where I'd left a couple of washers off. Everything comes off, you do it all over. Oh, goodness, yep. You do it until it's right. Mm-hmm. Three times of taking that exhaust system off was a very valuable lesson. It was very painful at the time because it was a nightmarish job. 
Sure. It taught me the importance of making sure that do things the way they're supposed to go together, and things were built that way for a reason. Mm -hmm. So that was very important. And then kind of more recently, in the last couple of years, I've been doing a couple of very special projects for a client overseas, which has literally required us, not only had we done, you know, full bodies for these cars that we're making, it has required us to do the molds and patterns to make glass, all the windows for these cars. And that's something we had never done before. We had made plexiglass windows before, certainly, and made tooling for that. And that's relatively straightforward, doing drape forming and whatnot. But we had never gotten into actually physically having glass made other than flat glass. Making compound curve glass is no small task. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for the people that actually do it. We've finally gotten it right, but i got to tell you, there have been times when I've come home in the evening after getting another batch of glass in that was wrong, just a little bit wrong, but just a little bit wrong is like being just a little bit dead. Uh, yeah. If it's not right, it's just not right. And again, that kind of goes back to that you know, apprenticeship days where you know, there's a reason. Yeah, things do have to fit just right and, and look right, or you've kind of lost your way. Yeah, you know, years ago I had a friend who, I helped him, and when I say I helped him, I, I handed him tools more than anything, but he restored a 68 uh, 911 Targa, and the car had been damaged, and it had a soft rear window, which was unique to that year, mm-hmm. I believe, and he wanted to put glass in there. Oh, wow. You would think it would it would be easy, but, but because the car had been damaged, it had been not rebuilt right, so oh, when he went no. to put the glass in, it didn't quite fit. It was very close, but... I just will never forget this. He said, well, let's just push just a little bit on the sides. I think it'll slide into play. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Tempered glass. And all of a sudden, kablowy, and there was just yeah. thousands of pieces of glass. I'll never forget the look on his face, and I'm sure the look on my face was just like, what happened? We have a window kit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll never forget that. But Yeah, it's pretty awful. Yeah, I had to go back and fix the body. and finally did get a piece of glass and it fit fine. Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. And I'd love for you to share a story when you had a real aha moment in your business or your career and a time when you realized that the idea or concept you had was really going to make it. And tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success. Gosh, there have really been quite a few. Yeah, there have. You know, it was interesting. A number of years ago, I decided to do a project based on a, and this was because I had gotten involved with Mazda and had actually been doing some design work for Mazda as a freelance. And the guys at Mazda were very kind to me. And one of the things they did out of the blue, one day they they called up and the guy at Mazda said, we're sending you a new Miata. Oh, cool. And I went, okay. (laughs) Okay, what am I supposed to do with that? Why? He said, you're a designer, do something with it. Do something interesting. Oh, wow. Okay. And sure enough, about two weeks later, Passport showed up with a brand new Miata. Very cool. So I drove the car for several days and fell in love with it. In fact, I fell in love with it so much. At the time, I had three Ferraris. Within a short period, I wound up selling the Ferraris because I found myself driving the Miata more than, <laughs> than the Ferraris. <laughs> that's it, something. It, it, it just became all-consuming. Uh, it was such a neat toy to throw around and, and have fun with. Anyway, one thing led to another, and um, I finally, looking at it one day, looking at the little character line down the side of it, wow, you know, that's that's really kind of reminiscent of a Daytona. And so I decided to do something in miniature, kind of a stylization that was reminiscent of a Daytona Spider. Oh, wow. And so I started rebodying the car. 
and one thing led to another, and the guys at Mazda called up and said, so how's it going? I said, uh, well, actually pretty good. And they said, great. Are you coming to Monterey? And I said, yeah, actually I am. And they said, great, bring the car. <laughs> okay. Okay, yeah. So they said, you know, bring it, and we're going to put it on display in our booth. Very at, cool. Uh, Laguna Seca. I showed up, and sure enough, it happened to be a Ferrari year. And I thought, you know, if, if I can do something that's not a replica but that, you know, kind of excites passion in people, and they get excited about it. I actually showed up at the Concorso on Friday and uh, literally parked in with a bunch of the Ferraris that were in the parking area, and I parked next to a full-size Daytona Spider, and I said, if this doesn't piss people off, and they come by and go, God, that's cute, <laughs> then I've achieved my goal, I've accomplished something. And yeah. indeed, that's what happened. In fact, the owner of the car went, Oh, my God, that's just the cutest thing I've ever seen. He said, it's kind of like my Daytona, but not really. And I said, well, that was the idea, was to do something that, would, that was fun and kind of evoke that, you know, that passion, but, but not to try to create a replica. And he said, well, you, you certainly achieved that. Very cool. I remember that car. I was there, and, uh, yeah, you did. It was a really neat rendition. To me, it didn't look like a replica, someone trying to copy, like, one of those bad Testarossa copies exactly. they put on a Fiero which I so did not want to do. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. That's fantastic. How about proudest business moments or career moments? I'm sure you've had many, but is there one in particular you could share with us? You know, one of them actually has to go back to Monterey. I got my very first factory commission. I used to own the uh, the two Nardi Blu-rays, and at one point I got invited to bring Blu-ray 1 Having shown it at Pebble Beach, uh, the director of Nardi USA called me and said, would you bring the car to SEMA? We want to put it in our booth. Well, sure I will, happily, you know, no yeah. problem. So I did, and one of the most amazing things, and this is kind of a fun story, is this is the day before SEMA is actually going to open to the public. And for people that don't really know about SEMA, that's the Specialty Equipment Manufacturers Association, and it's probably the largest car-related show in the United States. Back when we were attending regularly, it was in excess of six and a half miles <laughs> of aisles. Yeah, I've walked that show for 23 years in a row, so wear Good comfortable workout. shoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, one thing led to another, and I'm cleaning the car up. It's in the booth, and I'm just doing a final wipe down, and I'm in my jeans and, and one of my contemporary classic shirts. And a guy comes over and says, Doug Spear wants you in the, uh, in the press conference now. Well, Doug and I had actually gone out to dinner the night before, and I sat there at dinner, and we were talking, and one thing led to another. Uh, next thing I know, I'm, I'm sketching on napkins and saying, you know, Nardi really needs to revive the concept car tradition. And, you know, before long, we're, we're both nodding in, in the affirmative, and, and one thing leads to another, and, you know, we eventually go back to our respective hotels and don't really think about it anymore. Next day, you know, I'm cleaning the car, and then you get invited to come to the press conference. <laughs> Literally, as I walk in the door of the press conference, I say, I hear Doug Spear saying, and this is Jim Simpson. He owns Blu-ray 1, which is sitting in our booth, and we have commissioned him. He's going to build the next concept Nardi sports car. And, and that's like, the first you'd heard about it? That's the first I heard about <laughs> it. It was like I could not feel my legs. How bad? It was incredible. So, wow. yeah, that was an amazing moment. Oh, fantastic. Let's have a little bit of fun here. What was your first really special car? Not necessarily your first car, but maybe that is the most special car you had. But could you tell us 
a special memory you had with that vehicle? Yeah, you know, I'm actually going to go back uh, to my apprenticeship days again because I was fortunate enough to actually get to enjoy some pretty neat stuff uh, back then. And I spent every nickel I made, you know, buying cars and models and books and stuff that had to do with cars. I remember at one point my, my mom and I were driving home for whatever, I think my MG Midget, the clutch slave cylinder had, had gone out on it and I didn't have the parts to put it together so my mom had actually picked me up and we were literally on our way driving home and we passed a gas station and there was a 1969 Saab Sonnet hmm. gassing up. I recognized the car immediately from one of the books that I had and uh, one thing led to another. I got my mom to turn around and we <laughs> went back to the gas station and I, and I went up to the guy and I went, that's a Saab Sonnet 2V4. I said, it's not for sale, is it? And the guy said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, it is. <laughs> it was so, meant to be. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, having, uh, you know, serving my apprenticeship with Hasso, who had, had worked for Saab, this was a car that he revered and, and thought was, you know, an amazing and, and awesome little automobile. And I certainly thought it was amazing from the pictures in the, in the book that I had. And one thing led to another, and it was like, I got to have this. I remember paying $1,650 for it. Are there any vehicles that you've let go that you really wish you could have back? You know, back to that same Sonnet, uh, I actually put about 300,000 miles on that car over oh, the years wow. that I had it. I drove it all during my Ferrari apprenticeship, and you know, I had a lot of other interesting cars, too, but I just really loved that little car. And uh, when we left Houston to come up to Washington, uh, I literally filled a passport truck, and but that was six cars capacity. Mm-hmm. So I was only able to bring six cars plus whatever I was driving. And one of the cars that I let go of at the time was the Sonnet. Hmm. It had tremendous, you know, sentimental value to me, but the car really wasn't worth a lot of money, and I had actually just finished restoring it. And so one thing led to another, and I sold the car and kind of regretted it uh, <laughs> yeah. almost immediately. And one thing led to another, and a few years later I was out on uh, bringing a trailer, and there was a, a Sonnet two for sale. And I'd put a post out there that said, gosh, I wish I could find my old Sonnet, which I turned into a Target Top car. And about a year later, I get an email out of the blue from some guy I never met who said, I remembered your post on Bring a Trailer, and this has got to be your car. Isn't that amazing? And he sent me an ad, and the car was down in Georgia. But I contacted the guy immediately, and I said, this could not come at a worse time for me financially, but that's my old car. And I sent him a picture of it from back when I owned it, mm-hmm. and, said, and I really want to buy it back. And so one thing led to another, and within a few months, I've had the car sitting here, and I've done a kind of a half-hearted, what the British would call a tart-up on it, so that I could <laughs> make the car mechanically viable and, and cosmetically viable and drivable, and I have it back uh, now, and... and I've enjoyed it occasionally over the last few years. Mind you, the, the one thing that Sid used to always say to me is, you can't go home. <laughs> and to a large degree, he's right. So yeah. I mean, you know, compared to a lot of the other stuff I've had over the years and, and whatnot, it's really pretty agricultural and really not nearly as neat as, as it was in the back of my brain. But it's, it's still <laughs> neat to have it. It's still fun. And sure. I don't think I can bear to part with it again. Sure, I understand. Is there a project that you're working on right now that really has you excited and fired up? I'm doing two projects, for the, actually three projects for the same guy overseas. We're doing him kind of a modern iteration of a Ferrari 250 SWB. Oh, wow. Now, this, is, this is a guy that could easily afford an original, and he has asked us to do him a modern iteration car 
that he can drive and enjoy. Nice. That's the car that we that we had all the glass made for. Like I said, it's been a nightmare. We've been working on this project for a couple of years. And so one thing led to another. And because of my background with Mazda and doing a lot of design work for Mazda and whatnot, I'm very comfortable with their cars. And this was not what I suggested to him to begin with. I actually suggested, you know, scratch building a chassis or going and finding an earlier Ferrari and, you know, modifying it and rebodying it, which actually in large I'm, I'm kind of against, but it's still a way to get there. He didn't want to do that, even though, again, money is really not an object for him. He decided that he wanted something. We had built another little car for him uh, that kind of resembled a, a 275 GTB based on a second-generation Miata. So it's a little smaller, obviously, in scale, and it's scaled down. And, and again, it's a stylization. It's not, you know, it's not a replica by any stretch. But there are certainly enough of the elements that anybody seeing it would go, oh, my God, that's a 275. <laughs> Until neat. they look close, and then they go, yeah, not really. Yeah, not quite. Not quite. So Anyway, we're doing that, and we're also building him a, a DB4 GC Zagato-ish car as well, also on a third-generation Miata. Very nice, very nice. Sounds like some great projects. Now, here's a funny question for you. If you were a car, what kind of car would Jim Simpson be and why? Gosh, probably some sort of really interesting Japanese sports car. I hear everybody, I see everybody out there in my mind cringing now. <laughs> the reality of it is that the Japanese uh, have been very underappreciated for a lot of years, and they have built some really amazing stuff. One of the cars that comes to mind immediately would be the Toyota 2000 GT. I think they built 337 of them. What a remarkable car. I mean, they certainly took uh, a lot of license when building the car. They uh, took a lot of inspiration from Lotus, building a backbone chassis, and then decided that, you know, like a Jag, it ought to have a twin cam six. They started with their crown engine and had Yamaha build a head for it and a twin cam head. In fact, Yamaha actually wound up building all the cars under license, and it kind of was a Japanese E-type. Only maybe in a lot of respects a better car. Very neat. All right, Jim, we're entering what I call the last lap, and this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions, and you give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Sure. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Gosh, if that special car that you really want gets away from you, we call it Simpson's first rule. Remember, there's always another deal to be had, so don't be completely <laughs> heartbroken. <laughs> Very nice. Simpson's first rule. Love it. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your successes? Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess, you know, devouring information. I actually have a pretty extensive automotive library, and one of the things that I have been very good about uh, for myself over the years is whenever I go to a, an event and I find a car book, even if it's way too much money or a model that I just have to have for my collection, I kind of don't deny myself. Uh, I learned early on, yeah, if you let them get away, then sometimes they're really hard to, to find again. Now, speaking of resources, is there one in particular you could share with us? Maybe it's a website that you really enjoy? Yeah, absolutely I would. And actually, it's a, a site that belongs to a, a gentleman that I've actually become good friends with over the years. And it's a site called Forgotten Fiberglass. The only thing I will caution people about, Jeff Hacker has put together this amazing site and this amazing resource. He's actually a university professor down in Florida. He decided that, you know, there have been an awful lot of interesting American specials built over the years and that a lot of the guys that did these amazing cars back in the, you know, in the 50s and early 60s and whatnot are old and or dead at this point. 
And so he's actually gone back and he's tried to, to contact these people, and which he's done an amazing job of, and also to recapture the history of these very limited, if not one-off cars, and produce a site about them. The information that's out there, it's kind of back to that comment I made earlier. If you can find a car that you, you didn't know existed, uh, sometimes that's just an amazing treat, and you can kind of get lost out there for hours. There's so much information. Everyone's going to think this was planned, but it was not planned. To talk about coincidences, the guest here at Cars Yeah that will be going on live the day before your show goes live is Jeff Hacker. Wow. Is that amazing or what? <laughs> it is. He's a neat guy. He's a really neat guy, and he and I have gotten to be very, very close friends. And yeah. We, uh, we have a kind of a group, a circle of, of guys that do regular emails and stuff, and it's uh, it's a pretty magical group, uh, and these guys are real, real serious gearheads. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, that's pretty funny. How about books? You mentioned that you have a huge library, so this could be difficult, but if you could just suggest one great book for our listeners, what would it be? Oh, wow. Gosh, there's so many good ones. You know, one of the ones that was kind of a, a turning point for me was the old Fitzgerald and Merritt Ferrari book. And in fact, during my apprenticeship days, Sid actually gave me an autographed copy, which I still have. And it was, the, at the time, it was the definitive Ferrari book. So I guess that would be, you know, if people don't have that in their library, go out and find a copy. Uh, go out on eBay or something and find a copy. It's, uh, it's something you will spend hours enjoying. I'll remind our listeners that you can find links to all these great, great resources at carsyad.com slash Jim Simpson. All right, Jim, we're up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a real doozy for some people. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, and money's no object, Christmas is coming, so I'm going to buy you whatever you'd like, but you can't, <laughs> you can't sell it to buy a bunch of other cars with, so that little trick is off the table. What would that vehicle be and why? Oh, wow. I know exactly what it would be. Oh, okay. It would be one of the handful of Ferrari 330 GTC specials that uh, Pininfarina built. Mm. I think the original he built was for Princess Liliana Dorethy of Belgium. And I actually used to get to work on one of those cars back during my apprenticeship days. Wow. The car was geared for the moon. It was an extremely, extremely fast car. Uh, I love driving that car. I loved the looks. I loved everything about it. It kind of exemplified absolutely everything that I thought a front-engine, rear-drive V12 car ought to be. Nice. All right. Yeah, that would, that would be the one. Great choice. Well, Jim, you've taken us on a great ride today, and I've really enjoyed your stories, and I want to thank you for taking me and the Cars Out listeners on your journey. Would you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Ferrari? Gosh, absolutely. Cars are meant to be enjoyed. People that buy them and don't enjoy them are missing out on something very, very special and very important. So if you have that neat car or you get that neat car, don't let it sit in the garage. <laughs> great advice. Great advice. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and what you're doing? Gosh, we actually have a couple of websites. Uh, Contemporary Classics of Washington, or actually it's Contemporary Classics of WA. Dot com and SimpsonDesign.net. Great. Well, again, listeners, you can find links to everything that Jim has shared with us today at CarsYeah.com. Just put Jim into the search bar and his show notes page will pop right up. Jim, thank you for being so generous with your time and your oh, expertise. Thank you. Oh, it was wonderful. And, and for sharing your experiences with me and, 
and the Carshall listeners. <laughs> Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Much appreciate. Sure, sure enjoyed. You've certainly taken me on a journey as well. Many things I hadn't thought about in years. Well, great. I'm glad you had a good time. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.